Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson bringing to you this week news about fascism in the United States, France, and Myanmar or Burma. Going to get started with the United States. We have ongoing stuff about the attempted coup last January. We have reporting from The Guardian that former President Donald Trump called uh, a lot of aides about possibilities in front of him to prevent Biden's inauguration immediately before the coup. That is, you know, the night of January 5th and the morning of January 6th. This is evidence of direct communication between Trump and lieutenants like, you know, campaign officials, other sorts of aides, legal experts, about efforts to prevent the inauguration of his successor immediately before he prepared a riot that would facilitate the coup. You know, he was just about to get on stage to talk to the protesters who would storm the Capitol, and he was talking to legal aides about legal possibilities to prevent Biden's inauguration. This is some real smoking gun type stuff right here. Uh, This was apparently partly in response to his anger at former Vice President Mike Pence. Trump was specifically angry with Pence because Pence refused to do this parliamentary dirty work on his own, which required Trump to get involved. Uh, Trump wanted Pence to use his powers as the president of the United States Senate in order to prevent Biden's inauguration. We have additional reporting from the Rolling Stone about Again, the planning of the January 6th attempted coup. Uh, This is showing that some of those who planned the coup intentionally used burner phones in order to communicate with the Trump White House and with their fellow coup conspirators. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with what a burner phone is, I guess you didn't watch, you know, HBO's The Wire. Uh, A burner phone is a phone that has a prepaid plan on it, uh, and that has a number that is associated with that phone specifically. Uh, It is used in order to maintain anonymity, and it is stereotypically used by people engaged in criminal activities who want to avoid potential wiretaps or for their phone's records to be able to be found very easily. And now we know that people working with the Donald Trump White House and working with Trump campaign apparatus stuff were using burner phones in order to communicate with one another regarding the coup. Specifically, we know that Kylie Kremner, uh, who is a key organizer of the rally before the coup on January 6th, told an aide to buy these burner phones with cash and said, quote, that purchasing these phones was of the utmost importance. Uh, A staffer for her said that all planning of the rally was done on these phones. Specifically, Krimer used these burner phones to communicate with key players in the Trump White House and the Trump campaign apparatus, including Eric Trump, Trump's eldest son and the person who's in control of day-to-day business stuff with the Trump organization. Uh, Katriana Pearson, who is a consultant and sort of political coordinator for the Trump campaign. And most importantly, Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's chief of staff at the time. More on that later. What this means is that there's mounting legally admissible evidence that people were intentionally planning a coup, that they knew that the rally they were planning was going to result in illegal activity, potentially treasonous activity, and they were taking at least some haphazard, half-assed stabs at covering their butts in the case of them getting caught or the coup failing. Now, the most interesting part of this story is uh, coming now from CNN that Mark Meadows, 
that guy who is talking with these people on these burner phones, Donald Trump's former chief of staff, is currently working with the January 6th Select Committee on the coup. What this means is that Meadows, unlike a bunch of other people in the Trump apparatus at the time, is now cooperating with those who are investigating the coup itself. Uh, he is saying that he's going to hand over documents, uh, that he will sit with the committee members, that he'll give a deposition. Essentially, he's, he's giving them what they want. This is a real reversal from what Mark Meadows originally said he was going to do. Originally, it looked like he was trying to see if they were bluffing, you know, to try to see if they would actually charge him with anything or, you know, he was trying to prevent himself uh, from continuing to appear involved with the coup and its results. Instead, this is him saying that he's not willing to go down that criminal route, uh, which is the choice made by Steve Bannon, who accepted charges of being in contempt of Congress uh, a few weeks ago because of his refusal to cooperate with subpoenas from this committee. Instead, Mark Meadows, the person who was actually Trump's chief of staff during the coup, is working with the committee. Now, this means that the people involved in the coup should be pretty freaked out. Uh, it looks increasingly like Meadows, as a member of the Trump White House, was significantly involved in the planning of the coup. We know that he talked with people on these burner phones. We know that he was present in some of these conversations. We know that he was part of a network of people coordinating with the extreme right-wing like movement people out on the street in January 6th, and the government people making the legal arguments for Trump's potential continued presidency. And of course, with Trump himself, because as chief of staff, he was intimately involved in the workings of the Trump White House. We're going to have to wait and see exactly how the rest of the January 6th committee's investigation plays out. But Meadows cooperating is a, is a big, well, coup for them. Turning away from the United States, we have more news about the coup that occurred earlier this year in Myanmar, uh, a country also known as Burma. Uh, in Myanmar, the former president, Aung San Suu Kyi, is facing years in jail after the coup, uh, although her trial has been delayed. Uh, she's facing potentially decades in prison, mostly for trumped-up charges after her being uh, hidden from the public during the aftermath of the February 1st coup. These charges that she faces are mostly fake. You know, they're about like possessing an unauthorized walkie-talkie, like literally that, that kind of stuff. But it also involves potential corruption charges, which apparently are actually somewhat legitimate. Now, Aung San Suu Kyi is an elderly woman. Uh, she's in her late 70s. And so her returning to prison potentially for these decades might mean her dying in jail. She had previously been in jail for decades in the previous military government of Myanmar and emerged as the leader of that country uh, in a manner not unlike that of Nelson Mandela emerging from prison and becoming the president of post-apartheid South Africa. Her imprisonment now would mean that the military intends to prevent anything like her movement, her pro-democracy movement, being able to take power if they ever turn back to something that looks like an electoral democracy in the near future. Turning to Europe, we have news that Eric Zemmour is going to run for the president of France. Uh, this reporting is coming from The Guardian. Uh, this is no surprise, uh, but his formal announcement 
is a, a particularly disturbing little uh, little artifact, little piece of media. He appeared in front of you know a bunch of like old stodgy books using an oldie time like 1940s style microphone and said that he was running for president quote to save traditional France from disappearing. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Zemmour, you might be wondering, well, what exactly does he mean by traditional France? Well, his announcement would have told you this. Um, he means the France of Bonaparte, of Joan of Arc, of the kings of France. You know, he means like, like actual traditionalism. However, he's not a monarchist. What he means is the like modern concept of tradition, by which we're talking about white supremacy and male supremacy. Zemmour uh, had a career as a very polemical journalist. Uh, he is known for inciting racial hatred, uh, is a known Holocaust denier. He is a sycophant to the collaborationist government of Marcel Pétain, uh, the government of Vichy France, which worked with Nazi Germany. And he has actually stood trial in France for inciting racial hatred. What stands for his platform is standard white and male supremacist stuff. He had been doing pretty well in polls, actually, but has been slipping recently, uh, presumably hence his recent announcement for presidency. But it is very possible that he could take enough votes from the Front National Bloc, uh, which belongs to uh, Le Pen, and could actually face uh, President Macron in a runoff vote to be the president. Uh, however, it is not particularly likely that he would beat Macron, uh, all else being equal. That said, the fact that he is popular enough with uh, his background and his ideology to run for president, like to credibly run for president, is pretty disturbing. Finally, going to close out this episode as I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history, except that I am very sorry to tell you that this week we are not celebrating the death of a right-wing figure. We are instead talking about one who is alive, and it's somebody that I've talked about earlier this episode and quite a bit in the last couple months, Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon was born this week in history, November 27th, 1953, in Virginia. Uh, he attended Catholic schools, business schools, some naval academies. Uh, he served in the United States Navy on a destroyer in the 1970s, and after his service also attended uh, Georgetown in order to get a master's in um, business. He was particularly politicized, according to him, uh, by his interpretation of President Jimmy Carter's handling of the Iran hostage crisis, uh, because the ship he was serving on was stationed in the Persian Gulf during that particular episode. He said that this turned him from being a relatively apolitical, you know, boomer type person into being a like right wing Reaganite. After his retirement from the Navy, he entered business as an investor and did a bunch of like weird project management stuff, uh, moving from projects as disparate as like normal business investing, uh, like in video game companies to media investing. Uh, he was the producer for several minor movies. Uh, and he also was involved in planning a self-contained, like a biologically self-contained community for a while in the 90s. Eventually, uh, he found his home, uh, his really right-wing home in the United States' political system, as a co-founder, uh, founding member of the board of Breitbart News in 2007. 
Breitbart News was founded by a person named Breitbart uh, as a far-right media website, as a news site. Uh, it still exists today, and Bannon was the leader of it following the death of its founder in 2012. At Breitbart, Bannon uh, really, you know, found his voice and his place in the American political system. Breitbart has been a voice for the extreme right, uh, advocating for racial hatred, for male supremacy, for all sorts of really disgusting ideologies, uh, and pushing a lot of creepy right-wing propaganda. Bannon's real success in his personal professional life came as a late appointee to Donald Trump's inner circle uh, as the head of Donald Trump's campaign in 2016. Uh, he was appointed to this position with only about like 80 or 90 days left to go in the campaign, like, like, like a, a real last-minute decision. His consulting with Donald Trump, specifically about coordinating with potential extreme right-wing support for Donald Trump's campaign, was really key to Trump's victory and the direction of Donald Trump's presidency early on because Bannon served as Donald Trump's first chief of staff and also was just like a major uh, political commentator and political consultant and planner strategist. He, as chief of staff, tried to take a really hard line on things, you know, likening himself after both Dick Cheney and Darth Vader, like literally the, the, these are things that he said. Uh, he also uh, held a seat on the National Security Council, which is a major government body governing uh, security information and technology, things like that. He was finally ousted by Trump in 2017. He was ousted from his position at the White House in 2017, shortly after the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. Now, the common understanding is that he had both run against Donald Trump's efforts to control the presidency himself. You know, Trump had it go a little bit to his head, no surprise. And also Trump was trying to distance his White House from the extreme right wing, from the alt-right in the wake of the rally. After his position in the Trump administration ended, he did a lot of various political work. He had podcasts, he wrote books. He's, you know, tried to maintain a figure in politics, but it, it's been a little bit harder for him since then. He is now back in attention with his uh, refusal to cooperate with the January 6th committee. We can only see uh, by waiting what he plans to do next. So Steve Bannon, uh, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe, and leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Tell a friend, a family member, or a comrade about the podcast. If you really enjoyed the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. And you can find me on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. All right. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.